This morning, uh, I want to just come before you, and I pray that today your heart should be strengthened. I'm so thankful for worship. I'm so thankful for the presence of God. Like, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church service where you, don't, you didn't have worship at all, you know, even if you have something, you're thankful for it, but I'm so thankful that we have a worship service, or, or the time of the, uh, when we sing and we celebrate and praise the Lord, I'm so thankful for what we have here. And so I just thank you, those are all involved in the worship team, like thank you for bringing and ushering the presence of God for us to experience and enjoy God. It is such a blessing. And so this morning, what's in my heart for the church is, I'll just be very honest, I really don't have um, this, I don't know, maybe it, it is profound. Jesus is profound. And so the, the truth is that the word itself may not be profound, but Jesus himself is. And what has been on my heart all week um, has just simply this, the title of the sermon is Just Jesus. Just Jesus. And the, and, and the reason why I say that to you is because in the world that we live today, there is so many distractions and there's so many, uh, whether it's the, 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 you know, the things of the world that distract us or the, he- the news and the headlines cause us fear or we get focused on what's happening in this spot and this thing, or maybe even the things with all the, the beautiful things of the world just distract us. The thing that we ought to always be most focused on in our life is Jesus. Because there's no one else like him, and there's nothing better than him. He alone is the one that our eyes must be set upon. And I I think about that, and I think about what what it means to behold Jesus, to simply gaze upon Jesus. And my heart's desire, and I think the greatest need for the church at all seasons in the history of the church, has always been to gaze upon Jesus. Me and Pastor Lee and the other pastors were talking a few weeks back, and you know, as y'all know, there's a lot of things going on in the world, and we were talking about what, what, what do we need? What, what does the church world need? And he just said, guys, just keep it simple. Keep the simplicity of Jesus in front of the people. And, 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 and I, I could not agree more with that instruction that he gave, and it just, it just moved me to say, Lord, I want to see Jesus. And I would pray that every believer in here would come in and say, I want to see Jesus. I want Jesus. I, I would pray that it wouldn't be a believer like come in and say, oh, well, I want to hear about this or that. But I'd say if someone says, we're going to just look at Jesus, you'd say, my heart is beginning to flutter because he's the love of our life. And he's the one that Christianity and our very lives are all about. And so just being very honest with you, this is my desire. This is my heart today is to just simply look at Jesus in a way that some of it you have heard, actually all of it you have heard before. But going back to somewhat some of the basics, because the reality is, I think, and I, I, I don't think, I know, I've experienced it, I've seen it with people. We often leave the foundations of the truth of Scripture, and we have to be reminded to grab hold back to what we know to be true. Because on a day-to-day basis, an hour-to-hour basis, a week-to-week basis, we, we walk away from those things very clearly often. And so I just want to ground us in the person of Jesus and how beautiful He is, and I pray that tonight or this morning, God would really do that. And so... I would just say this to you. I know that, and I told somebody this, it's really an impossible task to present Jesus. And so the only way this can happen is by the power of the Spirit of God. So I pray right now, if you all would pray with me, that God would do the work. The Spirit of God, as he promised, that when he, Jesus said when he would come, he would declare Jesus, that he would do that in our hearts today. So Holy Spirit, we ask you right now that you would speak about the Son, that you would speak about Christ, that it would be your word, the word of God that comes out of us today, that comes out of my mouth, God, that provokes us to see Jesus in a way and to love Jesus in a way and to desire Jesus in a way that nothing, that no man could ever do. We don't entrust ourselves to a man. We trust ourselves to you, Jesus, to you, the Holy Spirit. We know that you're with us. And so speak to us very clearly today and give us revelation of the beauty of Jesus Christ, our saving King. In Jesus' name, amen. 
you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. Um, and this is what I want you to see, a, 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 just a simple passage. What we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the whole chapter of Mark chapter 2. And the reason why is what I want you to see from Mark chapter 2 is the way that Mark chapter 2 is laid out is that throughout this chapter, there's a series of questions that are asked. And the series of questions are questions that are asked specifically about Jesus or about what Jesus is doing. And if you understand the question that's asked and then the answer that Jesus gives, every time Jesus' answer actually reveals something about himself that he's letting people know, but it may not be in the most bold way. It's almost like he's given an illusion or he's given a little bit of information. And the reason why that is is because up in the Gospel of Mark, and the way the Gospel of Mark is written, is that there's this idea that all the way up to chapter 8, no one has a full understanding of the identity of Jesus. They pick up pieces of it throughout. And so in chapter 2, what you see is you start seeing hints about who is Jesus? What, what does he do? Why is he here? What is he all about? And so when you walk through this chapter, what you'll see is a series of questions that begin to reveal the identity and the work that Jesus does. And so my prayer is for us to look into this chapter and see these truths about Jesus because I believe that we need them daily. We need them every moment of our life. And so I would just pray that that would be what we look upon. So you understand, we're going to move through the whole chapter. We're going to go through it story by story or scene by scene, okay? And so for the first scene, this is what I want you to see. The first scene is this. It's, it's, it's what, verses 1 through 12. We won't read the whole thing. But what you see here is you see the understanding that in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has now just finished retreating with the Father at the end of chapter 1. He enters into the city of Capernaum for, uh, to do ministry. And when he gets there, it's a story you're all familiar with. And he gets there, he starts ministering within a house. The house is packed. People can't get in. There's a, there's a great need. Everybody wants to hear this man, Jesus, because everybody's wondering who is Jesus. In chapter 1, they had just spoken about how they were marveling at his teaching. They were marveling at his authority. And now fame in, is starting to spread about Jesus. Who might this Jesus be? Is he a prophet? Is he this? Who is he? And so people are gathered around at this house, and they're trying to get in to hear Jesus preach. And you've heard this part of the story so many times, and we've heard wonderful sermons about it, about how Jesus is in there, and then these four friends come, and they rip the roof off to lay their paralytic friend down into, before Jesus so that he can be healed, right? We've heard this story many times. And it's a beautiful picture for a lot of different things. And we can see how Jesus says it's because of their faith and the faith of the friends, and we can take truth from that. But when you look at this statement or when you look at this story, there's other things revealed here specifically about Jesus. And this is what I want you to see. Starting in verse 5, it says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can, for, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose, uh, and, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we've never saw anything like this. And this is what I want us to see from this passage. Jesus looks at this man and he says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. I want you to understand something here. In other places in the Bible, this is, this is a, a problem. A lot of times people think that if you have a physical condition, it means you sin. 
Your sin is the cause of it, okay? That's a problem. There's other times where people say there's no such thing as a physical condition that's caused by sin. But when you look at this passage, Jesus actually says to the man, your your sins are forgiven, and he receives healing, okay? So there there are cases, and you can look throughout the Old Testament. There are cases in the Bible where people had received sickness because of the sin that they committed. And we would look at this place and say that this is one of those types. Generally, and I think this is a mistake that a lot of people do, people are like, you must not be healed because you're in sin. Generally, I would push that off. But there are unique cases where that does happen. And in this story, this is one of those things. And what you see here is that in Jesus forgiving this man, he now finds joy and freedom. Consider his position, consider his state of life before Jesus forgives him of his sins. He's bound to a bed. He's bound to being restricted. He's bound to a life that cannot experience the fullness of the joy that a normal human being gets to enjoy just by walking and moving. And this is what this story presents. Because what happens is, is they ask the question, who can forgive God, right? Who can forgive God, or not who can forgive God, but who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the question that they ask. And when Jesus answers to this question, this is what he reveals. He reveals to them, like, why do you say these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk. He said, for the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what I've come to do. The revelation about this truth about Jesus is simple. It's so simple. And simplicity is not bad. Jesus forgives sins. Rocket science. But here's the reality, is that many of us forget that. Because of the way we come to church with shame and the fear that we have of what God thinks of us. And we walk in, and what we're, we're, when we walk around like is that paralytic man where maybe we've sinned and we found ourselves feeling so frozen. And we found ourselves like this, and I'm like, I can't move. And the reality is what we need is we need to get to the one who forgives. And this is what this passage just jumps out and screams to us, is that Jesus is the one that forgives. And just like I said, that man was no longer or could not experience the joys of life. It's like Keith said this last Wednesday, sin does steal the joy of our salvation. Psalm 51, 12, when David had sinned, what did he say? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. His sin had robbed him of the joy that God intended for him. And when we begin to indulge in sin and we begin to go after sin and we begin to, we begin to have whatever it is, dwell in it, go in it, live in it, there are consequences to that that cause our joy to suffer. And what we desperately need to remember in that moment is not that I have to hide from Jesus my sin or that I got to hide from him because of what he might do, but that I need to get to him and run to the one who forgives sins. And so I don't know what you came in here with. I don't know what your week was like, but I have an idea that there's at least some people in this room that came in that failed. And maybe you came in with a lot of shame and you're really considering like, you know what, I have messed up and I, and I didn't really want to be in God's house, but I knew I came here to tradition and what people might think of me if I'm not at church or whatever it might be. And I'm just like, man, and I feel like I'm stuck in my sin and I feel like I can't get free of this or it's just bound me up. Then this is the moment to say, what do you need? You need to get to Jesus. And there's no better place to be than the house of God to get to Jesus, to be with him. That he might forgive us of our sins and and restore to us the joy of our salvation. 
that we might find the joy that, like Jesus forgives, that moves us to a joyful state where we're not walking around with shame, depression, and sadness because of the sorrow of our sin or the consequences of our sin. And, and 1 John 1 says this, 1, 9, y'all know the verse, it says, If we confess our sins, he being Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That paralytic man needed his sins forgiven. There's a lot more we could say about that passage. There's a lot more we could dig into it. But the reality is this, is what the biggest thing is it does is it reveals this truth about Jesus. He forgives sins. I don't know about you, but I need this daily. I need to be reminded daily, Jesus forgives my sin. He will forgive my sin. And not only my sin, but he forgives the sins of others. The second truth I want you to see from this passage is in the second story. And the second story, it goes like this. It's a little bit shorter, but it talks about how Jesus went along after this. He went along the sea, and he's, and he's with a crowd, and he's teaching just like he was in the other story. But this time in verse 14, we see that he passes by a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And he's sitting at the tax collector booth. And when he's at the tax collector booth, Levi, Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him is what the text tells us. And when we look at this story, like we might not think this is a big deal. And many of you know these truths about tax collectors. But we might not think it was a big deal. But this would have been an utter shock for every person in that crowd, including the 12 disciples. Why would you call that man? We know that tax collectors in that day were considered some of the most sinners of all the sinners. In some ways, you could consider them uh, like in the 1950s or the 1920s, a mobster of that sort, like a mafia member. That's the kind of character they were. That's the kind of idea they were. And the reason why is because they were actual traitors to their own people. To the Jewish people themselves, they were traitors. And so Jews despised them. Nobody liked them. And so the reality is here he is, and he's looking at someone who's completely unqualified and does not deserve to become a follower of his and says, follow me. And it makes, this, it makes this big, bold statement from Jesus right off the bat that this is what he's after. He wants to fill his family and his kingdom up with people that are what we would call unqualified and undeserving of being in his family. These are the type of people he's after. And so this is what he does. He calls Levi to this. But then the scene switches over where now it says in verse 15, he's reclined at the table in Levi's house And in the midst of that, there's many tax collectors and sinners, and they're reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for uh, for there were many who followed him. And so they're sitting there with Jesus, and this act where Jesus is sitting in this house and reclining with them is in, in, in that day, and still today to a degree, but even more so then, is an act of accepting them. Right? It's an act of saying, I embrace the sinner. I embrace the one that everybody says is too unholy and too unrighteous to be accepted. I take those into my family that are complete sinners, that are not righteous, that are not what you would call the good person. This is who I want to fill my family with. And the problem is that this causes issues for Jesus. Verse 16 tells us this, that the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, here's the question, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And when we read this, we understand this, that for the the Pharisees and the scribes, when they saw Jesus doing this, their mindset with this, and this is what they believe, that if you ate with those people, you became that. 
That if you spent time with sinners and you were to be with tax collectors, it would rub off on you and that's what you would become. And the reality is, unfortunately, there's still some people who would profess Christ that still have that mentality. But what Jesus understood, and this is, the, this is the second truth about Jesus. The first is that he came to forgive. The second truth is this, is that he did not just come to eat with tax collectors. He came to transform tax collectors. He came to transform sinners. He came to those who were sinners, but not left them in their sin. But he came to completely transform their life. To do something in them that no one else could do. Right? Because what does he say? I came to those who are sick, and I'm a physician. In other words, what is his intent? To make them well. And this is the business of Jesus, that he transforms those who are sinners. Those who don't think they need any transformation from Jesus, he's not going to touch them. But those who say, I need to be transformed by Jesus, he will change their life because he's fully qualified and anointed to do so. Jesus even says, and you could look at it, we won't turn there, but you could look back at Mark 1.17. Jesus says to his very disciples when he first calls the first ones, If you follow me, I will make you. In other words, when you decide to follow me, I will begin to change you. I will do a work in you. And this is the truth we need to remember about Jesus. Because some of us have walked into this room today and we have said, I am struggling over and over again. And I I fail and fail over and over again. The one who can change you is here and his name is Jesus. He can transform your life completely where he makes you from a sinner to a saint. But then he also continues to sanctify you and change you and mold you more and more into his likeness. He can do that today. And so we shouldn't come in here with a defeated mindset saying, I will always yell at my kids. I will always, I will always struggle with lust. I will always, there's a difference between battling, right? Let me say it like this. We always, we can battle things. There's no doubt about that. But there's a a sense where I lose and surrender to these things all the time and they overcome and win on me. Sin does not have dominion, Scripture tells us. And the reason why is because what Jesus has done. But now, because of Jesus, we can be transformed not to live in the dominion of sin or the rule of sin, but now we can live in victory over sin. And we can live victory over the things that we struggle with, not because of us, but because of Jesus. What this passage teaches us so well is that there is no amount of human effort that can produce transformation. If so, the tax collectors would have just done what the the Pharisees done and produced transformation in their own effort and their own power. But the reality is this, the transformation that we so desperately need comes from Jesus and Jesus alone and him working in our hearts. And yes, there's a work that we we, we respond to him. Don't excuse yourself and say, I mean, just lay here like this. That's not how grace works. Grace doesn't just say you lay on the table and you sit there. Grace empowers you to respond to what Jesus wants you to do. Grace is an empowerment of God in our life. And so this is true, but at the same time, it all doesn't start with me just doing. It starts with the simplicity that Jesus transforms you. And I just ask you right now, how many of you have areas of your life you need to be transformed? Like my hand would be the first one to go up. I need transformation in my parenting area. I really do. We were on the marriage retreat this last weekend, and we were sharing with them, and I was very vulnerable with some of these guys and and some of these people in the room, and I just told them, like, man, I, I do struggle, y'all. You know, you, you, I don't know if y'all saw it. I'm trying to get ready to preach, and my son's running away from me, and he's over there trying to get, and I'm just like, oh, goodness, you know. And, you know, you're in church. It's like you're really nice in church and everything, but the reality is like, man, real life, I don't always act right, but I, I, you know what? 
I have a Jesus that promises to transform that struggle where I don't have to, I don't have to have, I don't have to live a life where I live constantly with a lack of patience. I can live a life of patience with my children. And so I say to you, like, I don't know the area of your life that you need transformation, but I know the one who brings the transformation. And so what is our answer today? Get to him. I get to Jesus. So that's the second truth I want us to see from the questions that we have. The third truth is this. Starts in verse 18. And I love this one. This one makes me so happy. It just makes me happy. When we look at this story, what we see is that these people start asking questions. And this is the questions they begin to ask. They look at John's disciples and they look at the Pharisees' disciples who were known to fast. And fasting in that sense was because there was a sense of mourning, all right? There was a sense of like, we're mourning because we want God to move, um, particularly John's disciples, because we want the kingdom of God to come, and the Pharisees, because they're just depressing. So they're fasting and these sort of things. And the people noticed that they did that, and so the people came to Jesus, and they said, why did John's disciples fast, and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is the question that they ask. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, what Jesus does here is they ask the question, and he reveals some things about himself. This is what he reveals about himself. He reveals, and if you look at the passage very clearly, you'll see a repetition of a particular word. He reveals that he is a bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. And I don't know how familiar you are with Old Testament Scripture, but Old Testament Scripture speaks about that the Messiah would be the bridegroom. In Isaiah 61 verse 10, we won't turn there, but Isaiah 61 verse 10, you see a Scripture that talks about how the bridegroom would be clothed with garments of salvation, and this would be his intent, is to give salvation to his bride. Just, just, just pause for a moment, okay? So they're, they're like, why are, your, why are your disciples, shouldn't they be mourning? If that's your bridegroom and he's with you, why would you mourn? What you would do is celebrate. Other scriptures that we see in the Old Testament, speaking of the bridegroom in Isaiah 62 verse 5, says this, For as a young, Mary, a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Why should Jesus' disciples be filled with mourning and depression and sadness like the Pharisees were? When their bridegroom rejoices over them. Church, why should we be depressed, filled with anxiety, when we have the bridegroom who literally rejoices over you? And let me say, there's not some, there's not some little thing tied to this saying, if you're perfect, he rejoices over you. It is, that's not in the text. I don't see that anywhere. I see it like this, that if you're Jesus's, if you're one of his disciples, you're part of his bride. And if you're part of his bride, he rejoices over you. And sometimes that's hard to receive. Sometimes what we would prefer is almost like, no, I don't deserve you to rejoice over me. But Jesus, get that worldly works-based mindset out of here and let me rejoice over you and feel my love shed abroad in your heart. And so I say to like believers and any disciple in here, like we don't, we have, we should not be depressed people. We should be filled with joy. And so this is the third thing this passage speaks to me so clearly is that Jesus came to bring joy because he's the bridegroom. Hosea 2, 19 and 20 says this. He says, I will betroth you to me forever and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice 
in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In other words, what kind of bridegroom is he going to be? He's going to be a bridegroom with steadfast love towards you and mercy towards you and faithfulness towards you. There is no bride and no groom in this room that has ever been married that can qualify for that. Nobody has been perfect in mercy in their marriage. No one has been perfect in love. And no one has been perfect in faithfulness. But Jesus, the bridegroom, is. And he is faithful to you. And he is merciful to you. And he has steadfast love over you. He does not waver to the left or the right. He loves you. And think about that in the moments when you doubt his love because of your failures all week long. Or you doubt his love because the circumstances of life seem to cast a shadow on it. But the reality is, the scriptures tell us, he's a bridegroom whose love has not been changed for you one bit. And I ask you not by my voice, but by the word of God, in faith in the word of God, to believe that to be true. If you're struggling to believe, God loves you today. Take hold of it by faith. And let him shed his love abroad in your heart. Because without us knowing his love, we'll never love him. This makes us come alive to God. Knowing the love of God. So you see this. Jesus came to bring joy because of the bridegroom. But I love it because it continues, right? What what happens the rest of the passage is that's verse 20. But then he all of a sudden makes this shift. And it kind of feels funky a little bit. He goes to verse 21. It's like, how is this connected? But he says this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on the old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst, a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh skins. In other words, when we read this, Jesus is essentially saying this, like, hey, you don't add new things to old things. Okay, when he says you do something completely new, and this is what he's doing. He said, this whole, this whole section is this. Jesus came to bring joy. How is he doing? Because he's the bridegroom, and this is what the bridegroom does. But the second thing is because he did not come to add the new to the old. And he's specifically speaking about the new covenant. He did not come to say, I'm going to keep a little bit of the old covenant for you, and then add some of my new covenant into it. He's saying, I've come to do new things. And these new things will bring you joy. This new thing will bring you joy. And this is the blessing. And there's so much about the new covenant. I will not even dare try to tackle that right now. You can go listen to Joe's sermons and Pastor Lee's sermons from the 9 o'clock over the past few months and year on this. But I will just tell you this. One of the most beautiful things about the new covenant is this. Is that the new covenant gave access for every single human being by the blood of Jesus to enter into the presence of the Father. Like... That, that, that is joy. Friendship, relationship with the Father is joy. And what the new covenant did, Jesus didn't have some of the old. He said, I'm doing something completely new. And what I'm going to do is going to be so completely new, it's going to give access to every single human being into the throne room of God the Father. That is joy for us to have. He made access for the joy to be ours, to go into God's presence. And guys, I say to us, like, there's, there's some block for all of us. I, I feel this in my own life where we, man, we know that God is joyful. We know that in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. But we do not go in because we're convinced that maybe other things might produce more joy in our life. 
But Jesus made, his, made a way by his blood being shed. I and mean, that's what he says in Mark 14, right? Mark 14 says, this is my body. And, he took, and then he looked, took at the cup and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Poured out for what? To be in the relationship with the Father. And what we do is we think, man, I know that in the, full, in the presence of God, Psalm 1611, that the, there is the fullness of joy. But I find myself seeking joy from other things. But what Jesus came to give was the best joy, the fullness of joy, the Father's presence for you. And, I, and for me, and I just pray, like, like, I want to run to the greatest joy I could ever have in Jesus and the Father. And I want all Christians to run there because there's nothing that can, that's better than it. And this is what Jesus came to give. He came to give us this type of joy with the Father. And you can have it. It's for you. It's for every one of us. And it's accessible now because of the blood. So I, I love this. I love that. I love this whole passage to say like Jesus came to bring joy because of the bridegroom that he is. And because he's made a way with the new covenant into the, fa- the father's presence that truly is the only place where there's a fullness of joy. There's joy in things, but the fullness of joy is God's presence. And so for us, we say, oh, let us run. Let us run to the presence of God. And then the last and final thing I want to bring out from this passage is in the last section of text here. You see now it moves from the conversation about fasting, but now he's going to have a, a showdown with the Pharisees themselves. It's about the Sabbath. And essentially this is what happens. This is one, on the Sabbath one day. Uh, Jesus was going through the grain fields with his disciples, and his disciples began to pluck heads of, gra- heads of grain with them. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Here's the question that he's going to answer to, and his answer reveals things about himself. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him... How he entered into the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And look, there's again, all of these passages, you could break down a lot more than what I'm doing today. There's a lot more to this, but he's going to correct some understanding of the Sabbath. And for you to know, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath here. Okay, there, there's Old Testament scriptures that, that, that you can point back to to show the connection that Jesus didn't just break the Sabbath. But what he does here is he makes a statement that we, have to, we, we don't pick up on. And like I said, the whole point of what happens in Mark, the first eight chapters, is the whole point is that God, Jesus is slowly revealing identity over and over again of who he is. That's what he's doing. He's slowly revealing what he's come to do, who he is, what he's all about. And he does it piece by piece. But he doesn't just like reveal it all at once on a big flash. He gives little allusions and little pictures and little scenes that would shoot back to Old Testament passages on purpose so that those who had ears to hear and eyes to see would catch it and respond to it. But those who did not, they missed it. And the truth is, is that's what happens in a lot of these passages. A lot of these people, they hear these things and they miss it and they never receive it like the Pharisees. But what he does here is he makes an allusion back to a particular character. And the character that he connects himself with is David. And if you know anything about David, David was the king of Israel. He was the king uh, that God had put on the throne. And God had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David from your line would come one who would sit on the throne forever. 
He would be the ever, he would be essentially be the king of all time. And Jesus is what he's doing is by pulling back to that story, he's actually making the direct connection to David himself. And then at the end of the passage, when he says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, he's connecting himself to kingship. He's connecting himself to the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that Jesus is the king. And this is what this passage, this is what Jesus is tying in, and he's, trying, he's, he's letting little breadcrumbs essentially out there for people to catch, though most of them never do, is that he is the king that was promised, and he came to be king. And this is what I love, because sometimes we're like, okay, Jesus king, what does that really do? Because what we want is we want scripture to do stuff for us. Unfortunately, that's always not the right heart, because his kingship is more important than what it just does for me. But the beauty is that what I love about it is that his kingship always profits us. Because he's just that kind of king. He's that kind of king that's so good. And so understanding what this kind of king would be or what he, Jesus who came to be the king, what his kingdom would be like and what would be done is some Old Testament scriptures like this. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and through 9, it talks about this. Uh, he, this is a, a messianic psalm about the king that would come. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, this king, G- King Jesus, who's connecting himself to this statement this, about him, is that what? He will, he will rule the earth. Okay, just hold on to that. No, it doesn't sound very like, how does that impact me right now? But just hold on to it. He will rule the earth. He will have the nations for his inheritance. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay? This is the kind of king he's he's come to be king. This is the kind of king he's going to be. And that he is. Justice to the nations. This is what he's bringing. Isaiah 42 verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And then Isaiah 9, 7 through 8, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. And this passage is saying that all of these things, you piece these together, you understand, Jesus came to be king. This is what he's alluding himself to be. But this is the type of king he's come to be, the king who will rule all things. Okay? Now let me ask you a question. If this, is the, this is, if this is your king, and this is the king that he presents himself to be, why do I fear anything? What is too great for this king? What is too big that Jesus himself, as king of all the earth and Lord over all earth, the one who will sit on the throne for eternity's sake, who will be the king on the, in the kingdom of God, who rules and reigns for the glory of God, what is too big in your life for this king not to handle? What is too big in your life for you to continue in fear that this king cannot speak into? He is the kind of king that is unlike any king the world could ever know. Because it's not, again, he's not like just the other kings. Because there's other kings who have great power. And maybe they could do some things for you, but they don't care about you. But we've already established what kind of bridegroom he is. We've already established what he's about. We've already established that what he really loves is his people. 
And he's the king with unlimited power and unlimited rule and unlimited reign. And he loves his people. So what in the world could cause us to walk in there and say, my king does, does, he he won't do anything for me. He can't do anything for me. He is your king who loves you, who rules and reigns the nations, who oversees all things, whose throne will be established for all of dominion. And I love what Isaiah says in verse 9, right? That it will be forevermore. He will establish justice. He would do all of these sort of things. And that even more beautiful, Romans 14, 17 says that this is the truth about his kingdom, that his kingdom that we get to participate in, that we get to be a part of because he is the king, is that it's a kingdom of righteousness and peace. Who needs peace? Jesus has a kingdom of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the Holy Spirit. So what do we fear? What do we walk in here with and, and, and feel downcast and brokenness with when we have this king? Jesus came to forgive. Jesus came to transform. He came to, he came to be the king of things. He came to do it all, y'all. He came to do this in our life. He came to bring, give us a joy that is unspeakable, that there's no comparison to. And that's what I, just, I would say, like, where are you? Every single person needs Jesus in here. Every single person. I don't care if you've been born again 30 years, 50 years, 70 years, or one day. That regardless of how every one of us needs one of these things. In the, or maybe uh, the truth is all of them. We need, to be, we need a reminder today that Jesus forgives us of our sins. We need to be reminded today that he came to bring joy to you. Because who is, who, like, I don't, no show of hands here, but if you're struggling to have joy in this life, you need to look at Jesus. You need to know your Jesus. You need to know the one who loves you. And so this is my prayer, and this is my heart, like, and the musicians, you can come up. Is could we, in closing, just present ourselves before Jesus? You don't have to do some work of your own to get some act of Jesus to like you. He's already liked you. He already loves you. If he hasn't proven that on the cross, I don't know how else he could. But the reality is he's already that. We just present ourselves and let him marvel you. Let him unravel you. Like, let, him ha- let him create some emotion in you. Let, let some tears come out of your heart and your eyes because of Jesus and his beauty and what you see in him and how wonderful he is. Like, guys, I mean this with all my heart and I don't want to ramble, so I'm not going to keep going here. But in my own life, I want to love Jesus. Like, I want him so badly. One thing I'm so sad about is that a lot of Christians, this is how it is. They know they need to talk about Jesus. And when they talk about Jesus, I mean, let me say it like this. Could you imagine if I was married? I am married to Becca. <laughs> in me and Be- Me- Becca's marriage, she's not there anymore. Me and Becca's marriage, I was going around and I was trying to talk to her, talk to people about how amazing Becca is. I'm like, man, Becca's so amazing. And, and look, my wife is amazing. There's so much I could say about her. I'm thankful for amazing woman of God, amazing person. But could you imagine if I went up to people and I was trying to convince people of how amazing Becca was, but I was like, you know, she's, pretty good cook she's a great or like she's a great cook she's um she keeps the house clean she treats our kids good and and what 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 it what I'm, i'm like saying statements like she's amazing but there's like this there's no realness to this truth to me there's no realness that my wife actually is amazing or that she's incredible or that she can cook like this or that she can do that and the reality is there's a problem in the church where that's part of some of what we do 
We will talk about Jesus with people. We'll share Jesus about people. But it's almost out of duty and deed than it is because I cannot help but tell you he is the one who has saved me from my sins. He's the one who's changed me when I struggled with things. And I told God in his face, you'll never deliver me. Why won't you? And he said, watch me, son. And he delivered me and transformed me. He was the one when I was lonely and I was depressed in college by myself. And he came and filled me with a joy that was unspeakable. And he's the one that is my king that I can trust in. When I was overwhelmed by circumstances and things in this life, and my king would come and he'd be real and be like, that's like, we, sometimes we talk about Jesus, like, Jesus, he forgives you, sinner, and he'll do this for like, Man, this should be, at least should just burn within us because Jesus has a realness to us. And this is my heart. Like, maybe all of this you already know. Great. I don't care if you know it. I want you to live. I want it to be real in your being, in your heart, in your DNA. And I want it in my life. I'm not satisfied. I can't be satisfied. I can't be satisfied with what degree. I want to go further with Christ. I want to know his beauty. I want to know his grace. I want to know his love. I want to know even in the suffering, as Paul would say. And I'd say, if there's anybody in this room like that, can we come to the altars? Can we say, God, maybe it's not as real as it should be, but I want this to be real. When I talk about Jesus, I want people to say, you burn for Jesus. And it's not just some fact of history or some man that lived at a time, but I burned with him. This is not a work of your flesh. It's a work that Jesus does in you. All you do is present your life to Jesus. And you ask him to do the work. Let him. He makes the promise. If you follow me, I will change you. Praise God, he'll change us. Praise God, he's the one who changes our lives. So let's just cry out to him. Seek his face. Offer ourselves to him and love him. Just love him. Think of what he's done. Think of the bridegroom he is. Think of your king. Think of how he just changed you. And he is changing. Just ponder him. Meditate on him. Dwell on him. For he is.